For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you who are new to Disciples Church. We're really glad to be able to uh, worship with you. We're glad for you to be able to join us uh, today. We have been the last few weeks um, in the book of Ephesians, and we're continuing in that today, as as Jaron had read. Uh, Ephesians really is that book that most people go to when you want to understand what the church is called to be, when you want to understand who the church is in its identity. The book of Ephesians is really one of those books that actually lead you into it, and so we're excited uh, to be into it today. We're excited to be in the first 13 verses today for sure. So, in 1999, um, my wife and I were either dating at the time or we were married. We got married then. Uh, we had seen this movie called The Sixth Sense. Now, if you haven't seen that movie, spoiler alert, it's coming. It's been 20 years and you should have seen it by now. And if you haven't seen it, I'm going to be able to share with you what that movie was about. So if you have seen it, just go ahead and sit back and reminisce. We'll enjoy this little recap together. So The Sixth Sense is classified from a movie genre standpoint as a thriller or a mystery. And it's the story of a young boy whose name is Cole and his psychiatrist, Dr. Malcolm Crow. Now we come to find out quickly in the movie that Cole sees dead people. Thus his need for a psychiatrist. I would need a psychiatrist if I were seeing dead people. So I resonate with that. And I'm a 48-year-old man. I'm not a 10-year-old boy. So seemingly, nobody but Cole is able to see these dead people. And as the movie goes on, Cole realizes that the reason that that he is able to see them or the reason that they're coming around him is because he is able to help them. They need help in a variety of different ways, and he's one of the guys that can actually help them. He's bridging the gap between the weird dead people ghost world and our world. So he's able to kind of make that happen. And then you get to what is the twistiest little ending that you will ever come across in film. To me, it is, is, it is still the standard. Nobody would have guessed what was coming in this movie. Not even my wife, who was really good at figuring those things out. We often watch movies and I'll find myself going, I have no idea what's going on here. And she's like, this and this and that. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm an idiot. She didn't figure it out. <laughs> so the reveal at the end of the movie is this. 
Cole's psychiatrist, Dr. Malcolm Crow, learns that he himself is one of the dead people that Cole sees and talks to, but he doesn't know he's dead. Man, we were blown away. We were stunned. No one would have been able to figure that out. But upon further review, the clues to that twisty little ending are actually there. So having rewatched it, the clues are hard to miss, and I'm going to point out for your sake and mine three of the clues that we should have picked up on to be able to understand what was coming at the end. Ready? Number one, Dr. Crow wears the same clothes for the duration of the movie. Now, I have worn the same clothes a couple days in a row. You have all probably worn the same clothes a couple days in a row. But I don't think anybody here has worn the same clothes for months, maybe a year in a row. We should have picked up on that. Number two, Dr. Crow gets shot at the very beginning of the movie. That is a pretty big clue that this guy was going to end up dead. Clue number three, everyone but Cole ignores Dr. Crow when he talks. Cole's mom ignores him. And remember, he is her kid's psychiatrist. You'd think there'd want to be some kind of dialogue as it relates to how he's doing. Dr. Crow's wife ignores him. That is a move I am familiar with. <laughs> that I get. I can connect with that. I actually once heard a comedian make the observation that it makes more sense to us that this guy's wife wouldn't talk to him for a year than that he had possibly died from a gunshot wound. So Sheila and I walked out of that movie thinking, man, how do we miss this? How could we be so foolish? But you know, you, you also find great delight and joy in the journey of that kind of a thing. And then ultimately the big reveal at the end, there's just something about mysteries that intrigue us as people, whether it be the Sixth Sense or Perry Mason or Scooby-Doo. So why am I talking about all this? You have to be wondering. Because today, we're going to be in the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3. And in these passages, curiously and conveniently, the apostle calls the gospel a mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. And it means something different than maybe the way that we would associate mystery. Uh, it doesn't mean mystery in the sixth sense kind of way necessarily. There are similarities. But we'll get into actually what that mystery is today. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson spoke of the word mysterion this way. He says, mysterion or mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. You see, the gospel, like many things about God, is bigger and broader and more meaningful than we can understand in this lifetime. It is beyond human discovery. And yet, it is seemingly simple enough for a child to be able to understand it. So how can both be true? Well, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3 together, beginning in verse 1. We'll look at the first five verses here. Reading again, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. So just a little bit of background into the story of God to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. Many of us will be. Let's just make sure we all get there together. The Jews, as we know, were God's chosen people. God specifically chose Abraham from all of mankind, and he made a covenant with him. He changed his name to Abraham because according to Genesis 17, he would become the father of many nations. And the beginnings of that fathers of many, father of many nations began in Israel. But you have to ask yourself in that moment when God establishes a covenant with Abraham, what of those who are not of Abraham's bloodline? What about those that God didn't covenant with? Well, that group of people are known as Gentiles. By definition, a Gentile is anyone who is not a descendant of Abraham, and that's probably most, if not all of us in this room. Gentiles were considered outsiders, unclean, unworthy of God. It was even unlawful for a Jew to be able to associate with a Gentile. And as Jonathan mentioned last week, Gentiles were essentially without, thought to be without citizenship in the kingdom of God and certainly the kingdom of Israel. So that was that group of people. You really had those two groups making up the world, still making up that world. And we get a glimpse into the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there, you, you, you certainly can. We'll look at it and, and read some verses out of it. But Acts chapter 10 is a story of uh, Cornelius, who was a centurion of the Italian regiment. So he was part of the Roman Empire. And he was a devout man, according to the Bible, who feared God. He gave generously, and it says that he prayed continually. That's how he's described. So this was a good dude. And he was a Gentile. So an angel of God appears to Cornelius and essentially says, man, listen, God loves and sees what you're doing. That's a very loose translation. That's my translation, but that's essentially what he said. And he says, send one of your men to Joppa to get a man named Peter. So the story cuts to Peter on a rooftop in Joppa praying, and Peter gets hungry, and he falls into a trance, and he sees a vision of a sheet filled with animals rising and falling from heaven to earth three times. And God tells him to get up and kill and eat each time the sheet appears, and Peter refuses three times. Does that sound familiar to you? Peter refusing something three times? What is it with that guy? So beginning in verse 17 of Acts chapter 10, we read, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, being Gentiles, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Again with the number three. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one that you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. So Peter and Cornelius meet and they exchange stories. Cornelius says, hey, I saw an angel. And Peter goes, well, I saw a sheet filled with animals. And then Cornelius asks Peter to share all that God had commanded. And then continuing in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, we read, 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter shares the story of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. And as he's speaking, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all in the room. And people began speaking in tongues and praising God. Gentiles began speaking in tongues and praising God. And it says they were all baptized. Here in Acts chapter 10, the mystery of the gospel is put on display. Did you catch it? If not, verse 6 in Ephesians 3 spells it out very clearly for us. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles, you and I, are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And here's what that means for you and I. No matter our background, no matter our family history, our bloodline, or our religious habits, all are welcome into the family of Christ. Through the gospel and faith in Christ, outsiders become insiders, and self-proclaimed insiders remain outsiders. Verse 6 of chapter 3 tells us that in Christ, through the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles are heirs. All that God has given Christ, he has given us. Like adopted children with the same rights as biological ones. Jews and Gentiles are members of the same body, it says. The two have now become one. The things that divided no longer divide. And we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. We share in all the spiritual blessings of God. John Stott spoke of the mystery of the gospel this way. I just loved it. For by his death, Christ demolished the Jew and Gentile and God and man barriers and is now creating in relationship to himself a single, new, multicultural human society, which is both the family God loves and the temple he lives in. That's what God is doing, and that is who we are. A single, new, multicultural human society. The things that divide us do not divide us any longer in Christ. And we are the family that God loves, and we are also the temple that he now lives in. That is the mystery of the gospel. And in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, Paul gives us an even deeper look into how precious this mystery is. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the insiders, those who shared a covenant with God, had not seen or heard what you and I see and hear today. All the shadows of what God was doing through the Old Testament have found their reality and their substance in Christ. 
Prophets in the Old Testament certainly would have understood that Gentiles could have responded to the call of God. They would have certainly understood that God had a plan for the Gentiles, but they would have assumed conformity to Jewish law. We see it in the book of Acts. And they would have assumed submission to the Jewish nation. They would not have assumed sonship. The grace of God leading them to sonship to be members of Christ's body, citizens of an international community and kingdom, on equal footing with all of mankind. Now we see this tension between Jews and Gentiles and how they thought of one another play out in Acts chapter 11 where the story of Peter and Cornelius continues if you want to go there with me. So in Acts chapter 11, Peter has to report back to the rest of the apostles what happened in Joppa. He had some explaining to do. They knew what had happened, but they essentially put him on the hot seat. They had a little group meeting, and Peter's sitting on the hot seat, and they're like, you went and ate and met with uncircumcised men. We don't do that, Peter. And Peter explains what happened as we pick up in verse 16. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. In the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. Here's the point. Children of God are not made by the blood of Abraham, but by the faith of Abraham in the blood of Christ. Children of God are not made by the blood of Abraham, but by the faith of Abraham in the blood of Christ. And if you are in Christ you have been washed in the blood of Christ. And even the faith that you have to believe, remember Ephesians 2, is a gift that God gave. So there, my friends, we have the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is incredible. So having come now to know and understand the mystery of the gospel, how then and through whom is this mystery revealed to a lost and dying world. Well, according to verse 3, the mystery of the gospel must be revealed to us by God's Spirit. It reads, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So while it is always by the grace of God that the mystery of the gospel is revealed, the means by which that mystery is revealed are varied. Here's what I mean by that. For Paul and the apostles, God revealed the gospel and its mystery personally. God revealed it to them personally. It began with them. And for the early church, revelation came through the letters and the testimonies of the apostles, those who heard it firsthand from the apostles. And then for you and I, revelation comes primarily through God's holy 
an inerrant word. Read, listened to, preached, as well as the testimonies of other believers and how the scriptures have proved themselves true in their lives. Is there anyone in this room who doesn't know Christ because of those things? And in other places in the world, right, our culture is unique, but in other places in the world where the Bible isn't as readily available, God hasn't stopped. The revelation of him, his gospel comes through visions and through dreams and through miracles. You just have to talk to a missionary in a Middle Eastern country. But in every case, it is God who has made the gospel of his son known. But let me caution you in this. If the Jesus that you have come to know is not found in Scripture, he must be ignored. And your faith must be reexamined. The revelation of God and the Spirit of God always agree with the Word of God. The revelation of God and the Spirit of God will always agree with the Word of God. Nobody gets a revelation from God or a sense from God that will disagree with his word. So friends, if we have come to know Christ, if we understand anything about God, his kingdom, or any of the deep truths we find in scripture, know this, we did not figure it out. We didn't even go searching for it. So we don't get to boast or brag And we don't get to judge or condemn those who haven't learned as much or been revealed as much or received as much. It is all by revelation. It is all of grace. God's spirit woos and enlightens each of us. And the eyes of our hearts have been made open and the veil has been lifted. Have you ever been reading the Bible or listening to a sermon and find yourself thinking, especially if you've been a believer for a while, how have I never seen this passage before? Did someone add it when I wasn't looking? Is this some new translation or have they decided to tweak it a little bit? Or why, isn't, why haven't I heard this before? I can't tell you how many times I've heard messages or read scripture and thought, I have never heard that before. But the fact of the matter is that truth, that word, that passage, whatever it was, was always there. But God, by his spirit in that moment, decided to reveal it to you. So when we come alive to Christ through faith, by the spirit's revelation, we begin to see things differently than we used to because we've been given, according to scripture, Christ's eyes. We begin to love people who we don't know or have much in common with because we've been given Christ's heart. And slowly but surely, we find ourselves wanting to love and connect with God more than we used to, wanting to love and connect with others in Christ more than we used to, getting together in rooms like this and singing songs out loud, opening up our hearts to one another and praying for one another, sharing things that we wouldn't share with anyone else. We discover that our affections and our desires and our dreams begin to change. Why? Because it is no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. But the grace of God 
in that revelation does not end with that mystery being revealed. Paul tells us in verses 8 through 10 that the mystery of the gospel must be proclaimed. It has been revealed, and now it must be proclaimed. Paul writes in 8 through 10, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what Paul is saying is this, the church, we who love and follow Jesus is God's chosen instrument to proclaim and reveal the mystery of the gospel. This is not just a call on vocational pastors or missionaries. We have each been enlightened, enrolled, and uniquely equipped to share what we know with those that we know. Your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and anyone you encounter is not an accident. God has wired you uniquely to be able to speak to them. Things that anyone else could say to them that you think would be better will not work because God has chosen to use you and put you there. Every believer, every believer is a priest and a minister according to the Bible. And every Christian if you count yourself a Christian today, understand that you have been called into full-time ministry. It is our job to tell, but it is God's job to save. So often the reason that we don't want to tell is because we think that the weight of saving somebody falls on us as though we need to say the right things and do the right things and have all of the right answers. Otherwise they won't be saved. Do you understand that it wasn't even someone else who saved you? And if it was you who saved somebody else, now all of a sudden that responsibility falls on you. But if it's God who saves, you can trust that it will continue. You can trust that it will end in completion. And you can understand that you just get the joy of declaring and leaving the results to God. You are not burdened to go and tell and share the good news. You are privileged to go and tell and share the good news and let God do what he's going to do. So let me ask you this. Do you truly believe, do you yourself truly believe that the gospel is good news and your only hope for salvation? And do you truly believe that the gospel is good news and the only hope of salvation for everyone else? John Stott said it this way. Once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. So do you believe that the gospel is truth from God and also riches for mankind? Because if you do, you're not going to be able to keep your mouth shut about it. So ask yourself today, am I sure? Billy Graham Maybe the greatest evangelist of our time who spent his whole life not being silent about Jesus went home to Jesus last February and he preached to hundreds of millions of people 
And he was asked once, how many people have you saved over the many years of your, of your ministry? I think somebody wrote into a newsletter for him. And this was his response. I'm thankful for your interest in our work, but the truth is neither I nor my associates ever even saved one person during our evangelistic ministry. I say this because only God can save someone and bring them from spiritual darkness into light. And all we can do is point them to Christ and trust the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith. Only God can save someone and only he should get the glory. At the same time, God has given every Christian the privilege and the responsibility of telling others about Christ. No, we aren't all called to be preachers, but we are all called to be witnesses to Christ's life-changing power. Only God saves. Only he gets the glory. But it's our privilege and it's our responsibility to tell. And God is going to use that. So in verses 8 through 10, we are told that the church is God's chosen instrument to proclaim and make known his manifold wisdom. That's the adjective used there. So the word manifold means the deep and rich and intricate, magnificent, even colorful works of God. This is the same word here that Moses used when describing Joseph's colorful, ornamented coat in the book of Genesis. So who then is the audience of this revelation of God's manifold wisdom? Well, according to verse 10, it is not just you and I. It says it's the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. You know what that means? Angels. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12 actually uses similar language, a similar idea. Verse 12 reads, It was revealed to them, he's speaking of prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Have you ever thought about angels longing to look into things that we, that we know? Have you ever thought of angels without, as being something other than completely aware? But it says that the mystery of the gospel is so deep and so profound that even angels are peering in the look. John Calvin said of verses 8 through 10 this way, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. But the church is the orchestra. So if God's world is the theater, and Christ is the conductor, and the church is the orchestra, it says the angels are the audience. See, the point of our lives and the world that we live in, both seen and unseen, is to bring attention and glory to God and his plan of salvation so that even angels want to peer in. Finally, in verses 11 through 12, we are told that the mystery of the gospel, the revelation of the gospel, and the proclamation of the gospel have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 12 read, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
Again, language very familiar to those of us that have been here over the last few weeks as we've been looking into the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Jesus Christ's life and his death and resurrection was always the plan for salvation. It found its fullness and its completion in him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is how God saves mankind. It is how God is able to use the weak and the broken and the sinful people that we are. It is how God reconciles both insiders and outsiders to himself. So Paul tells us in verse 12 that Jesus is also why we can access God with boldness and with confidence. So we don't go before God based on our own righteousness. We go because of Christ's righteousness. So ask yourself, do I approach God boldly and confidently? Or do I rely on my own works and my own assumptions of being worthy? Or do I just stay away altogether because I know I'm unworthy and there's no way he's going to want to see me? or talk to me, or hear from me. Listen, friends, there's no reason to be confident and bold in and of ourselves, but there is no greater reason to be bold and to be confident than the blood of Jesus Christ. Can I stop here too and and point out that in these verses, there's no unless clause. There's no go boldly and confidently unless you've sinned today. There's no go boldly and confidently unless your life is a mess. Unless you haven't been to church in a while. Unless you haven't had quiet time today. It's not there. Yes, God hates sin. Yes, he wants to fix what is broken in us. And yes, he wants us to be in deep gospel community with one another. And certainly, he wants to spend time with us and talk with us and be with us. But he wants those things because he loves us. He actually likes you and I right now. So the God who makes and sustains all things is inviting you and I in boldly and confidently in Christ. So go, often. As Paul writes this letter, he's in chains in a Roman prison. That's the suffering that he mentions in verse 13. And according to verse 1, Paul understood himself to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, humanly speaking, He was actually a prisoner of Nero. But to Paul, he was always and only a prisoner and a slave of Christ. Paul recognized recognized and trusted in God's sovereignty. Paul knew that nothing happens to those who are in Christ that God does not allow for his purposes and for his glory. See, Paul knew that no amount of suffering compared to the joy of the lost, the outsiders getting to hear and respond to the gospel. That's what was primary to Paul. And so here's a question that I wrestled with this week, specifically speaking of verse 13. He uses this language. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. How is Paul suffering for our glory? 
Well, if you look at the whole of the gospel message and the whole of church history and the implications connected to those things, I think you find the answer. The whole of scripture and Christian history points us to the fact that God loves us so much. He loves you and I so much that he was willing to let his son die for all our sins, past and present and future, to suffer on the cross and to become sin, though he knew no sin. And he was willing to let the apostles, including Paul himself, and countless believers before us be imprisoned and persecuted and suffer, even be martyred. Why? So that we might know the gospel of Jesus Christ in our time and in our place and believe. So that the gospel of Jesus Christ and its good news would not remain in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but it would find itself in Pewaukee, Sussex, Merton, wherever we are, Wisconsin, 2,000 years later. That is our glory. So God purposes and delights in revealing his son to all of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. I mean, take a look at the life of Paul himself. He was maybe the most famous of all of the insiders. He had an incredible Jewish pedigree, an incredible resume, even by his own account. And as Saul of Tarsus, the book of Acts says that Paul was breathing murderous threats, planning to kill and imprison Christians. That's why we referred to himself in verse 8 as the very least of all the saints. Paul knew well what he did. Saul mounts his horse to go to Damascus and round up believers. But before he arrived, God came along and said, nope, not today, buddy. Today, I'm knocking you off that horse. I'm revealing my son to you. I'm blinding you to what you knew before. And I'm turning your whole life upside down. When Paul wasn't looking for God or wanting God, God showed up and flipped his whole life around, caused him to cross over from death to life, to be part of the new, single, multicultural community called the church. Shoulder to shoulder with the very Gentiles that he was seeking to imprison and murder. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, do you know that God loved doing it? Potentially a smile on his face as he knocked Paul off the horse. Verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 1 in the NIV translation reads, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To know that God delights in revealing his son to you and I. He delighted in revealing Christ to Paul. He delights in revealing Christ to us and all those who have ever or will ever believe. And for those of you who have not yet trusted in Jesus, God delights in revealing Christ to you too. Even right now, even as you hear the words today, the fact that you're here means that he's after you. So don't run it is God's good pleasure to reveal Christ to each of us, no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how much how outside you think you are or how inside you think you are. 
He pursues and he chases and he woos all of us. And his desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to life in his son. No more mysteries. Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation has been revealed and he came for us and he died for us and he rose again for us. So I still watch The Sixth Sense when it comes on TV. It's one of those movies that I just watch even if it's on. But I do enjoy it differently now. I love seeing how the director gave clues along the way that I just didn't pick up on the first time around. There's all kinds of little ones if you watch it. And now that I know how it ends, every camera angle, every piece of dialogue, and every storyline points to that big reveal at the end. And I was thinking about it the last time I watched it, and I said, this reminds me a little bit about how Scripture has changed for those of us who see Christ as the center point of the story that God is telling. God is making one new humanity out of the two through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. And that is the mystery behind God's eternal purposes. It is Jesus himself who has been and is being revealed. Everything from Genesis to Malachi points to the fact that he was coming. Everything from Matthew to Jude points to the fact that he did come. And the book of Revelation points us to the fact that he will come again. And for we who are in Christ, the breadth and the lengths and the heights and the depths of God's glory, his wisdom and his love is what we get to spend our lives here on earth declaring. Declaring to one another who are discouraged, declaring to one another who are doubting, declaring to one another who are misguided, and certainly declaring to those who have not heard. And we also get to spend all of eternity rejoicing in the mystery of the gospel because we who were once outside have been brought in. Mystery revealed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us the mystery of the gospel. We praise you that we who were once not a people have become a people. Sons and daughters heirs, partakers, and ministers of reconciliation. We thank you for the grace of your spirit who strengthens us to comprehend the love of God in Christ. And we pray for greater revelation and greater understanding that our love for you and our love for others might increase. For those in this room who do not know you, would you open their eyes? and open their hearts to see Jesus and bring life where there has been only death. And for those you call your own, help us to be the church which you use to reveal, proclaim, and save. Let us live in the joy and the freedom of knowing that you are not dependent upon us for your kingdom's work, but you invite us to be part. What good news we have to share, Lord. And what a God we have come to know. Would you glorify yourself through us today and always? Amen.